welcome everyone to today's session on the impact of COVID on medical law presented by Bertie Lee. Good afternoon, everybody, and thank you for coming. Uh, I've been asked to talk about the impact of COVID on med medical law. And of course, we have to begin by looking at the impact of COVID on medicine. It would be hard to exaggerate the effect on the NHS of the COVID pandemic that we've had to put up with over the last 12 months. From the NHS's point of view, 12 months ago, we lived in a world where a 12 month waiter for surgery was a never event. Today, we have over 100,000 people waiting for surgery. Benign surgery for benign gynecology and orthopedics has slowed to a trickle uh, and is finding it very difficult uh, to keep up with the tail that accumulated. Cancer screening has all but stopped. Cancer referrals have more or less halved, partly because there's been a lack of screening, partly because people don't get to their GPs. Uh, I, I know not. Uh, all we know is that there is obviously a mountain of disease progression hiding behind those bald statistics. I was talking to an oncologist yesterday who told me that he was now routinely seeing tumours, the like of which they haven't seen since the 1980s, uh, there being so much more uh, disease progression before referral. So medicine has suffered a body blow and the NHS has suffered a body blow. We have to realise that as a result of 10 years austerity, we weren't actually keeping up with the targets that the NHS had set itself in the constitution of 2004 uh, and hadn't been for a couple of years. Waiting lists were already progressively getting longer. The four hour ED target was being displaced because it hadn't been met. Uh, the idea of seeing 92% of people within four hours of, of, of presentation hadn't actually happened uh, for about four years, and it was getting worse. The disparity between demand and supply at the beginning of COVID was getting worse. And so when we resume normal service, the service that we had, 12 months ago in February 2020, waiting lists will still be getting longer. Things will still be getting worse. We are also realizing that at the moment there's been a sort of, a sort of transition in thinking. At the time of the first lockdown, people were showing sharply V-shaped curves and anticipating a swift recovery. People thought that because the uh, lockdown had been imposed from the centre, it could be lifted as simply and we would recover as swiftly. We now realise that that is not 
happening and is not going to happen for a number of reasons. First, we're going to have a lot of disease progression. I told you that MSK surgery, orthopedics, had slowed to a trickle and there is a great deal more delay. Well, that is associated with preoperative disuse atrophy, increased risks of venous thromboembolism, increased risks of bed sores as a result of people uh, being kept in bed for weeks longer than would be ideal. We know that the cancer is not only going to result in increased mortality, it's also going to result in increased morbidity. We're going to have increased lengths of stay. We also know that there, quite apart from the specific uh, COVID precautions which are being taken at the moment, there's going to be a diminished tolerance of hospital-acquired infections, more or less permanently. Productivity in operating lists is going to go down, or sorry, going to remain down um, for a very long time as a result. So it is a grim picture. It is a changed picture. We're also realizing that medicine is more fallible than we used to suppose. We had moved progressively throughout the last, throughout the NHS, towards a more predictable and reliable service, as a result of which we move from a devoted admiration of our doctor towards, uh, and a more or less contempt or lack of confidence in his art, to a very considerable respect for his art and a diminished tolerance of individual failures. That has changed. COVID brought us up short with the limitations of modern medicine when confronted with uh, an intractable novel pathogen. And we discovered how fallible uh, medicine was. We had a 50% mortality of people being taken into ITU. It follows that if we have, or we had at the end of last year, a mortality of about 60,000, about 1%, one in a thousand of the population. If the mortality of uh, those who go into ITU is 50%, it follows that of the 999 who have survived, only one owed their life to the wonders of modern medicine and ITU, 998 of their lives to the fact that they either hadn't got it or they hadn't got it so badly that they needed to be treated uh, with the full armamentarium of modern medicine. We realised that uh, we were dependent upon our own bodies, our own antibodies, our own resistance uh, to recover from this extraordinary pathogen. So we learnt that medicine is fallible. We, we were reminded that medicine was fallible in a more vigorous fashion than before. If we had started off 
1948, when the majority of interventions did more harm than good, with a belief in the singer, our own doctor, rather than the song. We had drifted by 2019 into a belief in the song and a hypercritical attitude to the individual singer. That has changed. We have lost confidence in the song and we have acquired a renewed uh, faith and gratitude to the individual singer. Another of the problems that we had before COVID struck was chronic staff shortage. If you look at the rotors for trainees in paediatrics and obstetrics, for example, about 30% of them were rotor gaps. To keep a service safe, that meant that uh, registrars were deployed more frequently to work at night where they wouldn't be trained and, they, and training was being diminished. Um, Pediatrics, the college conducted a survey and concluded that we had about 700 consultants to, that we were short of. There were barely 700 consultants in the service uh, when I qualified. It is a transformation. We had a chronic shortage of midwives, which has been getting worse, and a chronic shortage of nurses. All of these impact on the quality of service. As a result of COVID, we have had seen staff, clinical staff being disproportionately targeted. Some trusts have told me that their 40% of their staff are off sick. This is a very difficult situation for the service to manage. Now, if we want to understand what the impact of all that's going to be on the law, we have to step back. The law obviously is responsive to the cultural changes in our society. A lot of the decisions that we have seen from the courts, which have been hypercritical of medicine, have reflected what I would suggest was an exaggerated confidence in the art that they are supposed to deploy. And uh, I think that we may anticipate that there will be a more tolerant uh, attitude from the courts. Perhaps that comes from the fact that I am uh, and have been for over 40 years a, a defendant's representative. And perhaps that is uh, naive on my part. But on the other side of the coin, the gist of negligence is, of course, damage, and we must anticipate that there will be more damage. If you look at the NHS resolution data, you will see that a sizable proportion of the claims that they handle result from delays in diagnosis or delays in treatment. Those delays are increasing. All of the cases, all the issues that I have described of increased disuse atrophy, which means that elderly ladies uh, who need hip transplant, hip replacements are going to be sentenced to uh, a lifetime of immobility, which is going to lead to associated uh, pathologies. Uh, all of these are damage which uh, 
they may proportion of them may seek a remedy. There will be people who die of cancer whose relatives blame the service. Um, we may say uh, on behalf of the service, that's not fair. The service is not set up and cannot be set up to deliver the sort of service that you used to have. You've got to adjust your expectations. It is not due to negligence on the part of anyone that you did not get your service as, as swiftly as the NHS would wish to deliver it. Now, I, I don't want to go on to a, a long discourse on the liability of the individual trust for uh, delays. You will all remember the case of ex-party Hinks in South Birmingham, 1990-odd, uh, when uh, someone who hadn't got a hip replacement for two years sued the trust and the Secretary of State on the grounds they weren't providing a national health service for them. Uh, and uh, they were told by the courts uh, that that was a matter to be settled as a political argument between the Secretary of State for Health and the Chancellor of the Exchequer, and it wasn't a matter for the courts. You may think that the drift of thinking over the last 30 years has been away from that, uh, partly stimulated by the 2004 NHS Constitution. You will have noticed the decision uh, 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 about uh, pre-exposure prophylaxis for HIV uh, last year, 2016, I think, where uh, the court rejected the argument that this was not part of the National Health Service uh, because these people were not at the time ill uh, and in effect got into the business of saying that the, what the service has to deliver and the timescale in which it has to deliver it. So I think that there has been a drift in that direction associated with our increased expectations of the NHS, stimulated by the changes which happened during the oneless years when we set up these targets uh, for ourselves, uh, which have, have proved not to be deliverable in the years of austerity after the global financial crisis of 2008. And they will be less deliverable in the future. Another thing that has happened to us quite suddenly as a result of COVID is that we have for the first time realized how important medicine is. The traditional attitude, which was shared by Chancellors of the Exchequer and Secretaries of State for Health on both sides uh, for many years was set by Enoch Powell uh, in his, when he was, he remember he was Minister of Health from 1960 to 62, and then he wrote quite a, an important book five years later about financing the NHS, where he said that the money available for the NHS was always going to be finite and the demand for health services was always going to be infinite. And this was first rejected. I can remember 
it used to be absolutely fixed political mantra in the 1970s and 80s that there was no rationing uh, and that the NHS was able to meet all appropriate, all, all reasonable demands. Uh, there was rationing by queuing, certainly, and by delays, but they denied that there was rationing by service lines, as you might call them. Well, that has become the, the orthodoxy over the last 25 years. And we do all now, we did all come to the theory that uh, Enoch was broadly speaking right, and the NHS never could and never should be expected to meet all the demands that would be made of it. Well, what's changed with COVID is that we've realized that medicine is not an expensive optional extra, which is a, an inference from Enoch's theory, uh, or aperçu perhaps, rather than a theory. Uh, if you cannot provide enough, then Anything you do provide is a diversion from necessary things like growing the economy, which will earn the money for the NHS. And therefore, the NHS takes second place in most other queues. After all, only a minority of the population need uh, interventions by the NHS in the sense of referral to hospitals in any year. Well, what's changed with COVID is that we've realized that an effective functioning health service is a vital and intrinsic part of every other aspect of the body politic. The economy has all but closed down as a result of the clampdown. Cultural life, concerts, theaters, restaurants, all these have been closed down. Education, uh, schools and universities, all but closed down. Uh, we're not saying we aren't getting all of these back slowly with limits, but all of them we now realize depend upon a functioning health service. This must raise the priorities of the health service in everyone's mind. The difficulty is that the cost of getting it right will be enormous. So lawyers must expect that there will be more damage. There will be more people looking for remedies. We may hope that the courts will be more indulgent towards it. We saw one decision, you may remember in July, when there was a radical change in services forced by COVID and there had been minimal consultation. And uh, those affected sued and the court said, well, yes, it was less consultation than you would expect, but look, the act does give the decision maker a broad ambit uh, of how to consult. And what they did was reasonable in the circumstances. Now, we may hope that the courts will take a similarly broad view and take into account the limitations of the service. It will not be negligent if you are kept waiting far longer than uh, we would wish, partly because of the COVID, 
partly because of the lack of resources. And it's not for the courts to impugn as negligent the actions of an individual trust who are struggling to deliver an effective service within the uh, ambit of what is available. So if you look at the impact of COVID on the NHS from a lawyer's point of view, you will see a service that is less confident of being able to deliver uh, what is wanted, what it would like to deliver. You should see a population and a legal system that are more understanding of that uh, of that predicament. There are some obligations which are new on the NHS uh, in in this changed circumstance. The first is a collective obligation to explain to society the limitations of what they can deliver and what they need to deliver more for us. This is a question of advocacy, if you like. They have to speak up and explain. If society chooses not to respond and not to pay what is necessary, it's not only in money, it's also in training and in uh, providing staff with circumstances which are sufficiently congenial for retention rates to be improved. So there's a collective need for advocacy. Individually, when dealing with each of us as patients, every trust and every clinician has an obligation to explain the predicament in which we find ourselves. Nothing about the Montgomery judgment has been has been reduced, but in some ways it may have been expanded. Uh, the clinician who counsels me about elective surgery probably has an obligation to advise me about the infection rates in their hospital, in their trust. They also have an obligation to advise me about the preoperative delays that I'm going to experience. If St. Elsewhere's uh, has a lower COVID rate or has a, uh, a shorter waiting list, do they have an obligation to advise me of that? I don't know. Uh, the limitations of what we can expect a doctor to have by way of information at their fingertips uh, when counselling an individual patient are fairly considerable. Certainly Montgomery requires you to tell me about the alternatives open to me, uh, but does it really require you to be an expert on COVID rates in the hospital down the road, private as well as NHS, and the relative waiting lists of other hospitals? That information is not always publicly available, and I'm not sure that it would be reasonable to expect doctors to have up-to-date information of that sort. Apart from anything else, we have found that it's very difficult to get reliable information, uh, data about uh, 
infection rates and delays tends to be retrospective and obsolete by the time it's available to anyone else. So there are new obligations on the service. Uh, it is trying to respond to them. Most people in elective orthopedic hospitals, for example, are being given information about uh, COVID rates in that hospital. Uh, some of them are getting information about COVID rates and elsewhere as well. But uh, these are new obligations and they will be very difficult to discharge. So in short, if I'm looking at, at this, first, the summary points are one, the NHS is no longer delivering on the rights that the NHS constitution said that we were entitled to expect uh, as a, uh, in, in the way of pre-operative delays and so on. It hasn't been doing that for some years. And in the last year, uh, the, the backlog has gone out of sight. Secondly, associated with the fall in productivity, we are seeing uh, and are going to see a lot more pathology and that will present to lawyers in the form of damage. Uh, thirdly, uh, not all of that damage will be attributable to negligence. Uh, I do not think that the lack of resources that society has put at the service of uh, the NHS is actionable in court, partly because of the pre-existing common law, but also because it has now been kicked out of sight uh, by a higher authority in the form of COVID. So we are going to see more damage. We are going to see uh, more people, fewer of whom I suspect will be able to look to the courts for a remedy. And finally, I think that there are new obligations on clinicians in the way of counselling uh, in a fashion that the law did not demand that they counselled uh, beforehand. We used to proceed on the basis that everyone had an optimal service. And if you were advising about the hospital acquired infection rates, the MRSA rates, for example, in your hospital, you were expected to counsel on the basis of national rates. And if your own rates were wildly divergent from national rates, you should probably have stopped operating uh, and got them under control. We now know that we're going to have a suboptimal service for a very long time. And that is something about which we are entitled to be counseled before we have operations or before we accept referral to hospitals. So those are the thoughts that I have about the impact of COVID on medical law so far. The final caveat I will leave with you uh, is uh, something that I remember when we first had to deal with HIV AIDS. And I remember the senior partner who was teaching me saying, the only thing I know about what I'm saying nowadays, not today, by way of advice about this problem, uh, is that it will be very different if I'm asked the same question in six months' time. Uh, this is a, an evolving picture, and I suspect 
that uh, the law in this area will evolve quite considerably, not perhaps over the next six months, but certainly over the next 12 months. So that's all I have to say. Any questions? Thank you for uh, that uh, insightful presentation. Uh, I'm Roti Mijayasimi. Uh, my question has to do with um, hospital-acquired COVID. Uh, patients who have come in uh, with something else and within the hospital acquire uh, the virus and perhaps even die from it. Uh, what's going to be the take of the law on this? How we approach it at the moment is we tend to batch the cases and look at them. Uh, rather, if it comes in individuals, but we deal with it as a serious incident, but at times we batch it to see where lapses in the pathway uh, has taken place. So what would be the view of the law on patients who come in and contract the infection? Well, as far as the as far as the individual hospital is concerned, I would have thought that their position would be fairly robust. I do not think that you could get a class action up against an individual trust on the basis of an elevated uh, rate of COVID uh, because it, there isn't any evidence that I've seen that it's associated with negligence on the part of the trust. I don't think individuals could bring a claim for the same reason. Uh, as to whether there might be a broader liability as a result of the absence of PPE uh, uh, I, and the slow start in testing, I don't know. I do know that some people are looking, some colleagues in other firms are investigating that sort of thing, but I would have thought that they were going to find it fairly uphill work. When COVID is killing millions of people all over the world, I thought it would, I think most judges would think it was rather hard to blame uh, in individual hospitals. The, most of the legal obligations, even under uh, RIDOR regulations, uh, do have a uh, some sort of criterion about reasonability and doing your best. And I think the evidence is that most individual hospitals have done their best. But obviously, the facts of each individual case might be different. All right. Lovely. That's helpful. Thank you. Hello. Can Please. I ask a follow on question? So I'm, I'm working in hospital in Southampton. Thinking about hospital acquired infection, what about the staff within the hospital? What is the obligation on the, the staff, whether they be medical, nursing, clerical to be vaccinated to protect themselves, their colleagues, the patient within the building. Is there a legal perspective there? Because I know that's quite a controversial topic at the moment. It is a highly controversial subject. Uh, at the moment, the law seems to be that nobody has a legal obligation to be vaccinated. And you would find it very difficult, I should have thought at the moment, to show that uh, causation from an individual person not being vaccinated to an individual case. So I should have thought that on its facts, legal liability was difficult to establish. 
at the moment there is no legal obligation to be vaccinated and employers are imposing no obligation to be vaccinated. That may well be changing. They've certainly had legal obligations to vaccinate against other things for many years. Yes. But uh, as long as there is no legal obligation uh, or, and no employer-imposed obligation, then I think they're free to go to work unvaccinated. Uh, whether or not their refusal to be vaccinated could be classified as unreasonable, uh, we all may have our views. And But if the, if the employer is not saying, you must vaccinate in order to do this job, then it's very hard to understand why the individual clinician is not entitled to the same rights as everyone else. If the hospital were to say, as a matter of policy, we require you all to be vaccinated, that would be different. But Can they do that? Sorry? Can they do that? As a condition of employment. I don't see why not. They do for other diseases. You'd have to, you'd have to get through the arguments before society would tolerate it. You'd have to win the arguments. Uh, and I can see that some of those would be highly sensitive and, and wouldn't be so easy to win. But um, you, you, you've got to come out and, and have the courage to impose it. And then someone could sue you for being unreasonable and the court could determine it. Interesting case. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. You were suggesting that judges might be slightly more lenient given the circumstances of the last year when it comes to judging conduct. But two questions, really. Number one, do you think trusts will struggle to show or prove the exact circumstances when memories have slightly faded in, I don't know, three or four years' time? And secondly, what about the example of staff who are acting outside role? Um, outside, yeah. outside of their normal role. Um, you know, there could be quite a lot of mistakes that are being made, I suspect. In that. And do you think that the courts would exercise any kind of sympathy in that specific situation? Yes, I do. Uh, partly because of the staff shortages. Uh, when I said I didn't say leniency, I said understanding. I was hoping for a more sophisticated uh, attitude. I wasn't thinking of any sort of indulgence of the sort that a West Ham supporter might be hoping to uh, derive from a more indulgent attitude. Uh, but I am looking for a, a, a more sophisticated apprehension of individual problems. And the problems of people acting outside role are very much emblematic of that sort of, that sort of issue. Uh, when, you, 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 when you've got uh, brain surgeons and cardiac surgeons who are acting as vaccinators, professors acting as vaccinators. Um, if they put the jab in the wrong place, I think it'd be slightly surprising. But people are working, we've had uh, consultants and professors working as nurses on ITU, and ITU nurses are uh, highly sophisticated, highly trained people. And the fact that you are a professor of gynecology does not mean that you will be as good 
at managing a patient on ITU. But on the other hand, if uh, the circumstances are that where you would expect to have one ITU nurse looking after one patient, they've actually got four, you have to have a more sophisticated understanding of the realities of what can be delivered. It's not that they've only got a quarter of the staff that they need because they have chosen that and have irresponsibly failed to recruit. It is that uh, these staff are not available. Uh, you'll remember, of course, that uh, the law says that the NHS Trust has a non-delegable duty to put someone in a role which they are competent to deliver. Remember Wilshire and Essex, where we argued that uh, a junior SHO had gone to a neonatal unit to learn, learn how to sample blood, and he couldn't be criticised if he sampled venous blood rather than arterial blood, because partly because he didn't know the difference and partly because he'd gone there to learn how to do that. And Brown Wilkinson said in the Court of Appeal, we didn't, part of it we didn't appeal, uh, that no, it doesn't matter how junior they are, if they are sent to take blood off a patient, they must be competent to do that. Uh, and I, I don't think anyone has suggested that there was anything wrong with that rule then, under normal circumstances. But now we have got all sorts of people who are doing their best. Uh, and I would have thought that they would be entitled to a more sophisticated understanding how the court would balance their, their interests and the reasonability of what they did in those circumstances against the interests of the patient who has suffered grievous harm as a result. I don't know, but I do think that the situation has changed and that the less skilled member of the team uh, will get uh, some indulgence. Do you think it might be down to the right test case if that sort of issue did come up? Yes, uh, and I don't think you get much of a, of, a, of a generally applicable. I think such arguments would always be fact specific and uh, having winning the right test case would be a bit of, of some help, but second case would raise different arguments. The facts were different. If there are no uh, no more questions or comments, um, that will bring the, the session to an end now. Thank you very much, Verity. Thank you. Bye.